Well, six months and 20 sermons ago, I began this study of Paul's letter to the Galatians by quoting from the early church father, a man by the name of Jerome, who lived in the 4th century A.D., who said that when he read the writings of the Apostle Paul, he could hear thunder. And I hope now that we've walked our way through this glorious epistle, you know at least a little of what he meant. Because nowhere in all of the letters of Paul do the peals of thunder seem louder, nor the flashes of lightning appear brighter than in this letter to the Galatians. Every chapter, indeed every verse, is just charged with electricity, surging with the power of a summer thunderstorm. Paul, as I hope you have recognized, was not in the mood to mince words. He had no time for pleasantries. He did not open the letter with a cordial greeting, and he will not close it with a fond farewell. He has no patience at this point in time for that conventional epistolary etiquette with which he Uh, wrote the rest of his 12 letters of our New Testament. See, the truth of the gospel was at stake in the church at Galatia. The foundation of these newly formed churches was cracked and was in danger of crumbling to the ground. So in response, Paul writes in the strongest of terms in order to reestablish the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. And to repudiate and to reject in the churches of Galatia any so-called gospel that seeks to add human merit to divine grace or human works, works of law to faith in Jesus Christ as the grounds or the foundation of a sinner's right standing in the sight of a just and holy God. So what I'd like to do is by way of introduction, since we're going to be revisiting these main themes In this concluding passage, what I'd like to do is just have you open to Galatians 1, and I want to take a quick review, and this is our last sermon of this study. In Galatians 1 and 2, you'll remember that Paul defended his gospel and his apostolic authority against the false teachers who had crept into the church at Galatia and were seeking to discredit his ministry and to distort his message. And he concludes in chapter 2 with the triumphal declaration, verse 16, that regardless of what these false teachers are saying to you, beloved, man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, if righteousness comes through law, then Christ has died, verse 21, for no purpose. In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul laid a theological foundation for his gospel. He just provided one biblical text after another in order to prove that the true covenant people of God are and have always been those who are of faith and not those who are of works. Those who are partakers of the covenant of grace, the covenant of promise, and not those who are ruled by the covenant of law. The children of freedom who are born of divine grace through the promise, born according to the Spirit, and not those who are born according to the flesh through the workings of the human will. Those who worship their God and Father in the freedom and in the glory and in the joy of Mount Zion, not those who tremble and quake in fear beneath the smoke and the thunder of Mount Sinai. He says, these... 
are the true sons of Abraham. The heirs of the promised blessing. These are the true children of God. And all others are under the curse of the law and subject to the wrath of God. In Galatians 5 and 6, Paul further described the freedom which the children of God enjoy. He says it is a freedom both from the penalty of sin through the cross of Christ, but also from the power of sin through the Spirit of Christ who dwells in all who believe. And he goes on this long exploration of the fruit of the indwelling Spirit. See, the the Spirit of God indwells through the hearing of faith those who are the sons of God, those who are the children of promise. In fact, it is the presence of the Spirit that marks off the children of God from the children of the flesh. Those who are in Christ from those who are in Adam. Such that Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, if, if you have not the Spirit of Christ, you are illegitimate children. You're none of His. And the Spirit of Christ within us Produces effects, it produces fruit, it produces results. It says the Spirit enables us to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to produce the fruit of righteousness in order that we may walk in love. This is what holiness is. It's walking in love for one another. It is doing good for those who are of the household of faith. It is bearing one another's burdens and thereby fulfilling the law of Christ. All by grace, through faith. In the power of the Spirit, which was his point from the beginning, was it not? We begin and end in the very same way. Which brings us to the end. We find ourselves asking, how, how should one conclude such a thunderous letter when what is at stake in the churches of Galatia is nothing short of the salvation of those who hear? Well, certainly not with a chapter of concluding greetings, as he does in Romans 16. Greet so-and-so, and and greet them, and the brothers who are with me send their greetings. He doesn't do that. He doesn't have time for it. Nor with a chapter of parting instructions, as in 1 Corinthians 16. No, for Paul, the only appropriate way to end the letter of Galatians would be with more fireworks with some concluding peals of thunder and some parting flashes of lightning. And that's what we found, or that's what we find rather, in Galatians 6, 11 to 18. In this chapter, Paul is going to summarize, he's going to return to the main themes of the letter, establishing one final time that the gospel is not, it is not circumcision and works of the law. Rather, the gospel is the cross of Christ by which we are justified. And the Spirit of Christ by which we are made new. So let's work our way through the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And hear what the word of the Lord would be to us this morning. The conclusion is marked off in verse 11. By a rather strange statement that we find from Paul's pen. He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. What does he mean by this? Well, in the first century world, parchment was very expensive. It was therefore imperative to write in very small scripts so that you could fit more onto one page. And it was vital that you wrote clearly and flawlessly because they didn't have a delete button. They didn't have erasers on the end of their quill. There were no redos or mulligans or 
No wadding up the parchment and throwing it across the room into the trash can and pulling another one out of the desk. So for this reason, it was very, very common for people who wanted to send letters in the first century world to employ a secretary. The fancy word is an amanuensis. And the secretary would write the letter word for word as you dictated it to them. But it was also common when you reached the end of your letter for the secretary to hand the pen and the parchment back to the author so that you could add a few closing personal remarks with your own hand and then append your own signature, which was a way of signifying to the ones who were receiving the letter that all that has come before, even though I didn't actually write it with the pen on the parchment, it bears my full endorsement and my full authority. That's what Paul's doing in verses 11 to 18. Paul's other letters make it very clear that this was his regular practice. Romans 16, 22, the, the secretary actually identifies himself. I, Tertius, am the one who am writing this letter to you. And he refers to the ones who write in other letters, 1 Corinthians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians. See, the words of the letter belong to the Apostle Paul, but the script belongs to the scribe. Well, in light of this, most commentators, most scholars think that it was at Galatians 6.11 that Paul takes the pen into his own hand and that from 11 on down to 18, these are not only his words, but also his penmanship. So why, why does Paul write in large letters then? Well, we can only guess. I mean, some have thrown out suggestions and many of them are plausible and we can't know for certain. Some have suggested it was due to Paul's poor eyesight. He's already made mention in Galatians 4.15 that he had some serious eye troubles. In fact, he says the Galatians' love for him was such that if possible, they would have plucked out their own eyes and, and given it to him if corneal transplants were available in that day. Others suggest that maybe his hand was damaged from some of the severe persecutions that he received. Just a few months before writing this letter, he was stoned. In Galatia, having never been thrown rocks at, I, I, I imagine that it does significant and irreparable damage to your body. Maybe he couldn't grip a, part, a pen anymore. Maybe he's simply admitting the fact that his own penmanship lacks the precision of the professional scribes. I don't know. But I think the most fitting suggestion is that Paul wrote in large letters in order to arrest the attention of those who would be reading and those who would be hearing as it was read aloud. In other words, just as he was drawing to the end, it's a, it's a way of signifying, sit up, take notice, pay attention, because I've got something important to say to you. In the same way that maybe we might put a, a concluding sentence in all caps, or in boldface type, or underline it. This was his way of of saying what follows is extremely important. So pay attention and take notice. So what is of such importance that he's wanting their full attention as he comes to the end of the letter? Well, I think he's going to answer three fundamental questions. Questions that he's already answered. But he's going to return to them again in this concluding passage. Those three questions, you find them on the back of your bulletin. They are... What is the true gospel? Who are the true people of God? And what is the true mark of authentic faith? So let's deal with the first question. What is the true gospel? 
Well, this has, of course, been the main question of the letter, but Paul's purpose in this passage and our purpose in this message is to address the issue one final time, to draw upon what we have learned so far, and to conclude it and wrap it up and say, this is the gospel. Six months later, 20 sermons in, this is the gospel. In verses 13 to 16, I think we can find the very foundation of Paul's gospel. We can, we can drive our way to the very core of this one true gospel. What Paul said in chapter 1 was the only gospel there is. There is no other. The true gospel we find rests upon two foundational pillars. All right, Those two pillars are justification by faith through the cross of Christ. And regeneration or new birth. By grace through the Spirit of Christ. These are the two pillars of the gospel. And in the opening verses of this passage, Paul returns to the question of what exactly it is that renders a sinner right in the sight of a just and holy God. For Paul, it was only the cross. The cross plus nothing. Nothing but the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Only the cross where full atonement for the sins of all who believe was made. Only the cross where the, where the full righteousness of the law was fulfilled. Add anything to the cross, according to the Apostle Paul. Add anything to the cross as the grounds of your justification. And you've lost everything. Take away the cross and you've got nothing. The cross alone is the grounds of our acceptance before God. But for the Judaizers, it was not the cross alone. It was the cross plus circumcision and works of the law. For legalists of every age, for legalists and Judaizers today, it is the cross plus any number of good works that people add to faith in hopes of presenting them packaged together before Jesus on the last day is the reason why he should let them enter the kingdom of heaven. It's as if, for legalists today, the cross is assumed, rarely talked about, but assumed, but what is important is what I add to the cross so that on the last day I can come to Jesus and say, see, Lord, here, here is my church attendance, never missed a Sunday. Here, here is my morning devotions. Here is my baptism. Here is my goodness. Here is my better than everyone else-ness. Here is my Americanized Judeo-Christian morality. That's why you should let me in. And the, 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 the interesting thing is, is that when we add anything to the cross, that thing that we add becomes the grounds of our salvation. It becomes that thing which allows us entrance into the kingdom and prohibits others from getting in. But not for Paul. For Paul and for all true believers, it's the cross and the cross alone. He agreed with the hymn writer. In my hand, no price I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. So in verses 12 to 13, what Paul does for us is he, he does a little lobotomy. He opens up the mind of the legalist, and he exposes it for all to see. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, they try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. But those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, 
but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. According to Paul, there were only two motivations standing behind the Judaizers' efforts to compel the Gentiles in the Galatian congregation to submit to circumcision and to come underneath the law of Moses. It was a desire for them to avoid persecution and the desire to win self-glory. We're going to deal with the issue of persecution momentarily, but for now I want to focus in on the matter of boasting of self-glory, of the desire to win the praise of men through my works and my religious activities. This was a central motivation in the Judaizers' doctrine and ministry. According to Paul, verse 12, their desire was to make a good showing in the flesh. And if they could convert the Gentiles to their legalistic hybrid of Judaism and Christianity, then they could boast all the more. Legalists want nothing more than to make little legalists. Because who do the little legalists look up to? The big legalists. And they get praised for their works. I would say so it is with anything that might be added to faith in the cross. It doesn't matter what century we're in, whether we're in the first century or the 21st century. Whether we're dealing with first century Judaism or 21st century Whatever this brand of moralistic, therapeutic faith there is in churches today. Whether it's circumcision or baptism, whether it's synagogue attendance or church attendance, whether it's keeping the law of Moses or living by the Ten Commandments, whatever it is that is added to faith in the cross, that thing will become the grounds of our boasting. That thing which I have done to merit salvation... And that thing that you've left undone, which is the reason why you're kept out. But according to Paul, it's an empty boast. He says those who are circumcised don't even keep the law themselves. Which points back to the statement that he had made in Galatians 3.10. Look back there with me. He says as many as are of works of the law are under a curse. Why? Well, it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. Paul picks up this theme again in Galatians 5 and verse 3 when he says, I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So you can't pick and choose. If you're going to choose to make the grounds of your acceptance before God things you do, then you've got to do a whole lot of things. In fact, you've got to do them all. And you've got to do them perfectly. Which none of us has done and none of us can do. In fact, if we're reading Galatians 5 and 6 correctly, none of us can even begin to fulfill the law until the Spirit of Christ has come to make us new. Do you remember near the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus issues that that chilling warning where he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. 
I remember hearing Paul Washer speak on this text once. He was answering a question where some, some anxious soul had, had asked him in fear and trembling how she could be assured that she wasn't going to be among those who were deceived into thinking they were saved only to find out at the gates of heaven that they had never really known Christ or that he had never known them in a saving way. How, how could she be sure that she would be among the saved when this passage says that on the last day there will be, quote, many who are deceived into thinking that they're saved only to find out that they're not and never were. And Washer's response to her was very Pauline in its orientation. He said, I cannot conceive of a true believer who comes before the gates of heaven and Jesus says, why should I let you in? Who then begins to rehearse all of their religious activities who then begins to list their religious resume as the reason why Jesus should allow them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the very listing of their religious activities when they stand before the gate of heaven and before the judgment seat of Christ is proof of where their boast was. In the final analysis, they weren't hoping in the cross of Christ and in the spirit of Christ. They were hoping in their own prophesying and in their own preaching and in their own miracle performing and in their own casting out of demons and in their own church attendance and in their own morality and in the fact that they were able to stay married when other people couldn't and they were able to avoid those sins when other people didn't. Anyone who comes before the judgment seat of Christ, who stands before the gates of heaven and Jesus calls them to give an account for why he should allow them entrance, who then begins to run down the list of things they've done rather than things he's done, don't belong to him. And Washer's point was this. The way to assure our hearts before God That we will be received by Christ on the last day and not rejected by him is to ask ourselves what we would say to Jesus if posed with the same question. If hypothetically speaking, he was to say, I don't see your name on the list. Why should I let you into heaven? Would your gut level reaction, would your initial response be, But Lord, I did this, and I did that, and I didn't do that, and I didn't do that. Or would it be, but Lord, my only hope was in the cross. And you promised that if I would come to you in faith, that you would forgive me of all of my sin, and cleanse me of all of my unrighteousness. That's what believers say. When you stand before the gates of heaven... Will you rehearse your religious activity, your good works, your moral righteousness, or will you do what Paul does in Galatians 6.14? He's writing to the Galatian church and he says, you've got people in your midst who are boasting in everything but Christ. But forbid it. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Believers know this. I have absolutely no claim to step foot 
into heaven that is not anchored in this cross. I have no boast other than the cross. And because my hope and my glory is in the cross of Christ's alone, and because your hope and your glory is in the cross of Christ alone, the world's hold upon you is diminishing. It's fading away. You don't find it as alluring as you once did. It's not as enticing to you as it once was. Its threats of persecution and oppression do not scare you as much as they once did. Why? Because when Christ was nailed to that cross by faith, I was nailed to that cross with him, and we weren't the only things nailed to that cross. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, so was the world. Judged in him. So we who boast only in the cross and find all of our glory, it's like, it's like it's magnetically drawing my attention to it and I can't look away, at least not for long periods. It's, there's, there's this compulsion within me to come back to the cross. And when I'm looking at the cross, I don't have time to be allured by the world. In fact, when I look upon the world, I see it for what it is. It's the fading realm of smoke and mirrors. It's offering fraudulent joys and fleeting pleasures. Which is why I increasingly long for Christ and for the real joys and the lasting pleasures that are found only in Him. And that's why, watch this, that's why those who boast only in the cross can no longer rightly be called workers of iniquity. As Paul calls the, or Jesus calls the people that He sends away from His presence in Matthew 7. There's a vital link between my boast and the world's grasp upon me. So the first pillar of Paul's gospel is justification by faith through the cross. The second pillar is regeneration by grace through the Spirit. Verse 15, he says, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. We talked about this in Connect this morning. I, I plead with you. Do not leave today having heard 20 sermons on Galatians and yet fail to grasp this crucial point. Salvation is not merely an act of the human will it's not merely a decision. At the foundation of salvation is a divine awakening. It's a regeneration. It is new life being imparted into a sinner who was dead. And this new life then begins to produce fruit. Works of any kind. Circumcision, baptism, law-keeping, religious activity, they cannot achieve one step toward new life. Salvation is entirely, completely of free and sovereign grace. God redeemed sinners from sin and death and hell through the death of Christ upon the cross and it is by faith alone that one may enter into the benefits of that redeeming work. God regenerates, gives new birth to sinners. 
by giving them his spirit and raising them from spiritual death and making them new and granting them new affections and new desires and new longings and beginning to conform them into the image of his beloved son. And catch this, he didn't ask your permission. He did it. You don't go up to a corpse and ask them if you can raise them to new life. Well, I guess you could, but they won't answer. Sinners are dead until he makes them alive. Which is why I'm so puzzled that people think they could boast in their conversions. As if they had anything whatsoever to do with their new birth. As if they decided one day, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to get born again. I'm going to get raised. Beloved, you can't even cry out to God until he breathes upon you his spirit and fills your lungs with air. Salvation is not the result of religious activity. It's not the result of human striving. It is the result of new life in Christ, which drags us right back to the point. So our only boast is in Christ who died to redeem us and sent us his spirit to regenerate us. Justification by faith in the cross of Christ. Regeneration by grace through the spirit of Christ. Leading infallibly to our sanctification and ultimate glorification as we're transformed by that spirit into the image of Christ. And I would ask you as we conclude this study of Galatians, is that your boast? Do you resonate with what I've been saying? Does the declaration of free and sovereign grace cause your soul to leap within you? Does the sweet exchange of justification, my unrighteousness to Christ, his righteousness to me, does it cause your soul to well up and overflow with joy? Does the truth of God's electing and and regenerating grace and choosing to raise you to new life and faith cause you to tremble with gratitude? Because Paul would have it to have that effect. I think he would have First Baptist Nixa upon the conclusion of a study of Galatians to say, wow, he saved me. By his cross, And by his spirit, he saved me. The only reason why I am not still dead in my trespasses and sins. The only reason why I don't still think that the world is the source of joy. The only reason why I find myself compelled to look upon Christ and to set my hope in him is because he saved me. And when this fleeting life ends and I stand before the gates and I stand in the presence of my King and my Redeemer, the only boast will not be in my achievements and my strivings and my efforts. The only boast will be in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is God's precise design. Because He would have everyone who stands in His presence having the same song filling their lips. Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. 
There is absolutely no room in God's design for us to take credit for anything. What is the true gospel? God saves sinners. He justifies them through faith alone in the cross of Christ. He gives them new life by grace alone through the Spirit of Christ. Beloved, I would like nothing more than for the effect of this sermon, for the effect of this message, to be that you know how to explain the gospel when you're talking with friends and neighbors and people out in the world. Justification by faith through the cross of Christ. Regeneration by grace through the Spirit of Christ. This is the gospel and there is no other. Second question Paul answers in this passage is who are the true people of God? Now again, the the identity of the true people of God has been a major theme, especially in chapters 3 and 4. And in verse 16, Paul touches upon the subject one last time. He says, and those who will walk by this rule. What rule? The rule that he's just laid out. Peace and mercy be upon them and or even upon the Israel of God. Now, it's very common for Paul to end his letters with a benediction, a blessing of peace and mercy and grace upon the church to whom he has just written. But but in keeping with the uh, sharp tone of, of the entire letter, the benediction that we find in verse 16 is sharp, and it's specific, and it's conditional, and it's not for everybody. This is no general blessing just sort of launched out upon the churches of Galatia. This is a blessing of peace and mercy only for those who walk by this rule. That is, those who are justified by faith in the cross of Christ and who are new creations by the Spirit of Christ. It's a blessing of peace and mercy only for those who boast in Christ and in Him alone. It's not for those who boast in works of law or human achievements or religious activity. In short, it's a blessing upon those and only those who believe Paul's gospel. Paul has absolutely no interest in extending a blessing upon those who believe a different gospel. Why? Because they're not blessed. What did he say in Galatians 1? If anyone, even an angel from heaven, comes to you proclaiming a different gospel than the one that I've proclaimed, let him be not blessed. Curse. So who are the blessed ones? It is not everyone. It is not religious people. The blessing of God, peace and mercy, comes only to those whom Paul identifies as the Israel of God. Now you can probably see how this would be a pretty severe slap in the face to the Judaizers. See, they considered themselves to be the true seed of Abraham. They considered themselves to be the heirs of Abraham's blessing. They said, we're the Israel of God. And if you Galatians 
You Gentiles want to become a part of God's people and a part of Abraham's family and inherit Abraham's blessing, then you need to do what Abraham did. You need to do what we did. You need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law. And Paul rebukes them with severity. You are not the Israel of God simply because you are descendants of Abraham. What has he said? Galatians 3, 7. It is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 3, 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Galatians 4, it is those who believe, those who are children of the promise, those who are born of the Spirit, like Isaac, who inherit the blessing. See, the true Israel of God are those who walk by this rule. Physical descent does not make you a part of the everlasting covenant. Neither does law-keeping or external ceremonies. Circumcision, uncircumcision, nothing. New creation, he says. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, the cross and the Spirit alone. You, beloved, who walk by this rule, are the Israel of God. Along with all those who in every place and in every time have their hope anchored in Christ and their boast only in the cross. You, beloved, are the sons and the daughters of Abraham. You are heirs of all that God promised to him. It is of you that God has said, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. And it is you who will dwell in everlasting joy in the land of promise, which is the new heavens and the new earth. Who are the true people of God? Those Jew or Gentile whose only hope is Christ and whose only boast is the cross. Third question and finally, Paul identifies in this passage a true mark of authentic faith. What he calls the brand marks of Jesus. This is a strange verse. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Well, we learn from the opening chapters that Paul uh, was a little bit upset. We're going to understate it. He was raving mad because false teachers had come into the churches of Galatia and had called into question his apostolic credentials. He's not one of the twelve. He wasn't with Jesus during his earthly ministry. He wasn't around when the resurrected Christ appeared to the disciples. And we know, we know, he, cl- he claims to have seen a vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus, but who can be sure? Who was with him, right? And having questioned his apostolic ministry, they were then able to question his apostolic message. You know, he doesn't preach the same gospel that's being preached in Jerusalem. He rejects the law that God gave through Moses at Sinai, so on and so forth. 
And Paul, throughout this letter, has answered every one of those objections at various points throughout Galatians. But here at the end, he offers one last evidence of his authenticity as an apostle and the authenticity of his gospel. One that, in his own mind and for the churches, ought to be so convincing that from now on, no one should be bold enough to cause him trouble. The evidence of his authentic faith, his authentic ministry, and his authentic gospel is persecution. That's what the brand marks of Jesus are. The Greek word is stigmata. It's the scars left from the persecution that he had endured and the suffering that was inflicted upon him for the cause of Christ. In the Greek word, it's the same word that was used of the branding mark that was put upon slaves that let everyone know that this particular slave belonged to this particular master. How do we know? Because he bears his mark. The scars of persecution, Paul says, that's my branding marks. That's what proves that I'm a bond slave of Jesus. That's what proves that I represent the master. The scars of persecution, the willingness to endure suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel was the irrefutable evidence that Paul was a slave of Christ. And conversely, the fact that the Judaizers' desire was to escape persecution, verse 12, was evidence that they did not belong to him. Paul is insistent that the Judaizers preached a salvation by circumcision so that they would not be persecuted by the synagogues that persecuted him. Paul preached salvation by the cross and was persecuted his entire ministry until the day finally came when he gave his life and lost his head for the sake of Jesus. But what is it about the cross that invites this persecution? What, what, what is it about the preaching of the cross that, that invites such hatred and wrath from the world? Well, Paul, Paul put his finger on it back in Galatians 5.11. He says, but if I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? And he uses a word there. He says, the stumbling block of the cross then would be removed. The stumbling block of the cross, the scandal of the cross. The cross is a scandal to the world because it is a direct assault upon human pride. It's an affront to our self-righteousness. It's an affront to our self-reliance. It's an affront to religious people to go to them and say, you can't boast in your religious works. You are wicked and evil and that's why the Son of God had to die for your sins. You cannot boast in yourself and glory in the cross at the same time. The cross calls you to make your choice. The whole reason the Son of God was nailed to the cross is because we're wretched and unclean and cursed and unrighteous and helpless. And that message does not sit well with the self-exalting pride of the world. If humanity were basically good, there would have been no need for a cross. John Piper writes, quote, Self-exalters remove the stumbling block of the cross by ignoring or despising its implications. Self-exalters have to avoid the cross because the splinters of the old rugged cross are always popping the balloon of their self-exaltation. But Christ-exalters glory in the cross. Indeed, they cherish it above all things. The cross calls to you this morning. 
It calls you to humble yourself, to admit your sin, to admit your wretchedness, to admit your utter helplessness, and to joyfully surrender to the glory of Christ who alone can save. And the world cannot stand that message. The same world that crucified Jesus will crucify his followers. The slave, he says, is not above his master. They persecuted and killed the Lord of glory, and they will persecute and kill his church. And that's why the physical scars of persecution are the brand marks of Jesus. The identifying mark of authentic faith in an authentic gospel. So I believe that this text calls us to a bit of self-examination, does it not? Am I a slave of Christ? Well, How do you know? Do I bear his marks? It is not for no purpose that Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.12, that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The physical scars of persecution... The emotional scars of rejection are the brand marks of the bond slaves of Christ Jesus and the evidence of our authentic faith and an authentic gospel. So I just would call you to examine, does my faith in the cross put me at odds with the world that hates it? Does it put me at odds with my unbelieving family? Does it put me at odds with my unbelieving friends? Does it put me at odds with an unbelieving culture? Does it put me at odds with the other people on the wrestling team and the other guys on the football team and the other people on the track team when I won't talk about the same things that they talk about? Does it put me at odds with people? Do I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus? There comes a point in everyone's life when they must choose between the way of the cross and the way of the world, and the brand marks of Jesus belong to those and only those who cling to the cross. In verse 18, Paul concludes his letter with a final blessing. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. Grace. Love that word. What... What a fitting ending to to this letter. Radical, free, sovereign, effectual, saving grace. And my yearning, burning desire is to be a part of a church that is filled with grace-loving, Christ-exalting, cross-boasting people. The world will not understand us. They will, in fact, despise us and persecute us. But it matters not because the world is dead to us, having been nailed to the cross. So my invitation to you this morning, to you, First Baptist Nixa, listen, to you, the Israel of God, is to join with the Apostle Paul in this radical confession. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. 
Hallelujah. Jesus is my life.